You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, it's my birthday. Mazel tov. Happy birthday. Hey, yeah, I, um, I took most of the day off of work. It's uh, it's homecoming, so the students, you know, had plenty of stuff to do, and uh, I didn't feel I didn't feel too bad. Yeah, you know, it's it's a real moral hazard being a professor with just kind of the power to just cancel class whenever, because you know I don't like work because uh, it's stuff I have to do. I would prefer to just not be doing anything, but you know they pay me to teach, and so I I teach when I'm supposed to teach. Cancel class today and just kind of. Hung out for a bit and uh, hung out with my friends tonight. Uh, the old, uh, the old regular pub run. You know, I'm thinking about uh, as I as I start to close out my 30s. You know, this is uh, this is 38. I don't know, right? It doesn't feel that important, but it's it's almost important, right? It's almost 40. I think I'm doing okay. Glad to hear it, and a happiest of birthdays. Oh, well, thank you, sir. You're welcome. And how better to celebrate than to talk about spooky Batman, because despite it being the end of September and your birthday, this episode will be dropping a few short days before Halloween. Ah, yes. Halloween. Spoopy. Spoopy season. (sighs) I love Halloween. I'm looking forward to Halloween. Uh, uh, my brain will get ready. You will get into the episode if you start talking about the comics. I had a long day of work. There was a car accident right outside my house as I was trying to finish the day of work. I I, I heard the crash. And so that was a moment. And I spent the after after that, the rest of the evening editing this month's bonus episode. So I, I haven't really taken a break to you know sit back and enjoy anything. So... I'm I'm a little slower to to get rolling today, but I'm getting there. I am getting. Uh, what is this month's bonus episode for the people who are not heroes and are therefore freeloaders? The September bonus episode is four cartoons featuring Harley Quinn and specifically the original voice of Harley Quinn, the recently departed and much lamented Arlene Sorkin. Ah good stuff in there and the bonus episode that will be dropping a few days after this episode drops is going to be the batman versus dracula because it's spoopy season and so batman fighting vampires in a cartoon that's the way to go for this month now we haven't recorded that yet right no we have not okay so we still have to record that but by the time the people the heroes are listening to this it will be available for them to listen to. It will be probably available a couple of days after this. Ah. I try to drop them the last day of the month each month, especially because 
you drop the Dracula episode on Halloween. You gotta of drop course it you on do. Halloween. Of and course you do. This one should be dropping on the 26th. So that is a Thursday, and Halloween is a Tuesday. So if you want to hear about Batman fighting Dracula in an animated form instead of just the Red Rain form, come back on next Tuesday, join the Patreon, and you'll be able to hear Batman fight Dracula. So one last thing, and we'll, we'll get into the, the comics. Our pub run group does a, uh, a Halloween run every year. So we run in costume. And my personal rule for costumes for running is that I have to be able to run in the costume. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to like run as fucking Chewbacca or something in like a fursuit and then die. So my first year I was a misinformation. I was a runner in female attire and I had little, little post-it notes of like coronavirus uh, you know, pandemic misinformation and all sorts of other misinformation on me. The the thing I didn't really uh, expect is that my little post-it notes flew off during the run. So I was literally spreading misinformation. It was perfect um, and tragic all at the same time. The second year I ran as, uh, as someone who did not cross one of our major intersections carefully. So I had a street sign impaled through me. And uh, and this year I'm going to be running as one of our uh, one of our pub run friends uh, who just goes shirtless in these really short running shorts. And uh, it's a specific brand of short running shorts that anybody who might happen to be a runner might be aware of them. They're, they're called chicken legs and they're really short and they're like these loud patterns. And so to run as this guy, to be him, I got a pair. And the fucking joke's on me because they're really fucking comfortable and they fit well. And I kind of tricked all of my friends into buying these chicken legs. And we're all going to wear them together for our next race. And so I think the joke is on me for Halloween. Sometimes you you get a costume and it's, you just think, boy, I wish I could wear this all the time. Yeah, you can. Yeah, I can just wear my chicken legs all the time. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that's uh, that's my Halloween thing for this year. I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be Matt Fletcher, uh, who runs uh, shirtless year round, and I'm hoping uh, as you're listening to this, I hope it's warm in Alabama. Oh, so yeah. I I look, I know we've got. Uh, tweens and teens and, and probably 20 year olds and, and 30 year olds listening to us and, and let me tell you this cherish your time uh, before 30 because it really starts to go downhill after that like things start to hurt things just don't start to get better like you just kind of you got aches and pains that just don't go away so really, if you're like 25, live it the fuck up because it's going to be sunset soon. And sometimes you're 1500 years old and have a demon stuck inside your body. And that <laughs> really sucks. <laughs> oh, he might be 75, but he's a master of transitions. Yes. Matt Lazowitz. My goodness. That one, I just saw it. It was right there hanging in front of me. Uh, because... <laughs> This week, as we said, it's Halloween. So we are reading three stories about Batman and his most diabolical ally, the demon Etrigan. Our first story is Hour of the Serpent. 
This is Brave and the Bold, Volume 1, number 137. The writer is Bob Haney, with pencils by John Callan, inks by Bob McLeod, no color or letterer were credited, edited by Denny O'Neill, with a cover date of October of 1977. Chinese New Year, the year of the snake. The actions of a youth gang in Gotham's Chinatown has inadvertently summoned the ghost of an evil sorcerer, and Batman and Etrigan must work together to stop the ghosts before the clock strikes midnight on New Year's Day. So, a couple of initial observations here. One, this is one of the rare books that is not on Comixology, but is on uh, DC Infinite. It's interesting to me how they obviously retouched the cover here, but none of the interiors have been retouched or basically given any care. And most of the stuff we read from this era, 60s and before, on Comixology has been retouched. Because as we've discussed, you know, this is the important stuff. This stuff is going to get in the trades. It's really something to see that just basically been rescanned are scanned from you know the original newsprint and just not not addressed in any other way. A lot of times they'll try to find the original art. This I don't think was even scanned from the original printer's proofs. This felt like they got a copy of the comic that had been in somebody's basement and scanned it because it is rough. Yeah. And you know what? That's fine because to me that's in a way preserving like the original integrity of the work like i'd almost rather see this than something that's been heavily retouched that just looks like tom tomorrow i remember the last time we read something from this era that had just been absolutely you know recolored and re-inked i'm just like this doesn't feel authentic in the least we see that a lot with the neil adams stuff yeah a lot of the neil adams stuff when they did those deluxe hardcovers of the Batman by Neil Adams, they were all really heavily computer cleaned and it's so glossy. And you can see when you've got, especially the physical media on these books, that a lot of this stuff was not intended for glossy paper. So they have to retouch it because if you don't retouch it and you put it on glossy paper, it looks weird. But it still looks like it's obviously something that has been redone when they do that. Speaking and one of, other and, and sorry, one no, other no. note. Looking at just the Brave and the Bold from this era, I really want to do a whole bunch more of these books. <laughs> like these these are all such weird, wacky team-ups. I gotta say, I've got a buddy of mine, Hub, who does the Teen Titans Defenders podcast, Tighten Up the Defense, one of the best comics podcasts on the internet, is a huge fan of Bob Haney, Brave and the Bold. Hub, I will get you. I've done your show talking about Lonely Place of Dying. We're going to get you on here to do an episode of some crazy ass Bob Haney, Brave and the Bolds, because they are all wild freaking comics. And the great thing that you see in them and you see it here. While these Brave and the Bolds don't really line up in the continuity with the rest of the DC universe, they have their own weird little continuity where they're always referencing like previous stories. Like the villain. B&B. Yeah. The villain here, uh, Shanzi, who appears nowhere else, 
it is immediately referenced it's like oh yeah he was originally in bnb number 75 because bob haney might not remember that oh yeah wonder girl is the young wonder woman not her own original character that he might not remember so he winds up accidentally creating a brand new character who is a continuity <laughs> mess for the next 50 years but he does remember every weird ass story he ever wrote one thing to call out here and it's oh boy problematic it's, it's definitely problematic but it's one of those things where it's it's not the problem with this comic it's the problem with this era of comics yep this is a story set in chinatown with a mainly asian or asian american cast yeah the coloring of skin tone here is not good no batman is definitively white and these uh assailants are yellow literally yeah yeah we we aren't using that in a pejorative way they are literally colored yellow yeah it is not good it is not a good look. Boy, if there's anything you could touch up when it comes to the coloring, maybe you touch that up. And, you know, that presents an interesting issue. You know, DC is under no obligation to preserve these, to present them, to do anything with them. But we have seen Warner at large, you know, with the, the Bugs Bunny shorts that have many, many problematic you know, issues with them, you know, they, you know, put that kind of disclaimer at the beginning, like this stuff was wrong then it's wrong. Now we present this as it was as a matter of, of history. Whereas, you know, Disney is content to just let things go into the memory hole, but it would be interesting to see, like, if this issue had been retouched, is the coloring completely redone? Is it redone with uh, some kind of warning at the beginning? Like, a, hey, this was wrong. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. But we present this as, you know, as the historical record. I was surprised. There were still moments where it's like, oh, that's not great. But this, I mean, I guess this was 77. So it wasn't so old. If this were the 60s, there would have been a lot more uncomfortable asian stereotypes in here there were a few moments with especially some of the elderly asian characters that there was some broken english but most of the characters here they didn't have stereotypical accents they didn't speak in a fractured english they were just written like people who were probably born in america which is not something you would have seen maybe a few years before this in comics. I'd be curious to read the, the 75, the previous uh, Sean Z story and see what is that 70 ish issues later, how different that character and the surrounding Asian characters were written. And that was a specter team up. So someday maybe next Halloween we'll do Batman and the specter and throw in some more specter stories. But the story itself is, as with Brave and the Bold, it's wild, but it's a pretty simple concept with all kinds of crazy trappings fleshing out this pretty simple idea. There is the Savage Dragons. Yes, that is their name. Eric Larson can take that up with DC. 
they're a street gang in Chinatown with a leader who Batman has had some dealings with in the past, Willie Chang, and a friend of his, also the Brave and the Bold Batman, friendly guy. Even into 77, he's got a 66 sort of walking down the street in the daylight sort of vibe to him. But his buddy, Danny Liu, has contacted him and said, hey, these savage dragons are causing problems. Their leader, Willie Chang, has threatened to break up the Chinese New Year parade. Batman shows up and he's like, I'm going to be on patrol here. Meanwhile, this ghost of Shanzi, a sorcerer that he and the Spectre took care of X number of issues ago, has been popping up again. Jason Blood and his fiance Glenda are in town. And it winds up being Batman and Etrigan versus Shanzi, who was summoned back to life or spectral life by the fact that our gang leader was impersonating him to intimidate the locals. Makes perfect sense. But what gets wild is what Shanzi's MO is when confronted with someone he needs to dispose of. Because he doesn't kill them. He doesn't mind control them, freeze them in place. What does he do to people? Uh, turns them into a fly. Yeah. Well, it turns Jason Blood into a fly. And Blood is able to then write the little poem that he says to turn into Etrigan in like grime on a window and is then able to turn into Etrigan, who's normal size. And then Batman confronts Shanzi. And what happens to him? He gets turned into a bat. A vampire bat. <laughs> and it just becomes this crazy thing with Batman, like fighting the bloodlust and trying to find a way to stop Shanzi, who's told him, oh, yeah, normally the spell would wear off. But because it's the new year, if you're still in that form by the time the chimes chime midnight of the next day, you're going to be stuck like that forever. Congratulations. Meanwhile, Etrigan, I have to read more Etrigan stories from this period because most of I, I've read some of the Kirby, the original stuff, and I've read a lot of latter day Etrigan. But let me go into a trance and telepathically reach out to Merlin. I don't remember Etrigan doing that elsewhere. That might be Bob Haney. Yeah. It's an interesting character. Yeah, we'll get to, I suppose, the the next story that really explores that that connection with Merlin. And, you know, I appreciate it, right? Not knowing anything about this character, having somebody try to explain, like, what it is. But the more you explain it, the more time you have to spend explaining it. And the more it just, uh, oh, shit, this is weird. Yeah, I mean, that comes from the original Kirby stuff, the connection to Camelot. That is right out of the original Etrigan stories. And it is a strange thing where you're inserting Camelot into the DC universe. Not uncommon. I mean, Camelot's part of the Marvel universe, too. How many different Camelot stories can we all think of? I took a whole class in college on the Arthurian matter of Britain. And all the different interpretations of Arthur. One of the things that just totally fucking blew my mind as an adult, like learning stuff, that Arthur never existed. 
That's wild. Absolutely wild. There's a Roman general named Arturius, who's the closest thing there ever was to a King Arthur. And he wasn't a king. He was a Roman general. Scholars are split on whether there was a guy who could fairly be said to have been Jesus Christ. But we can definitely agree there was no King Arthur. It just, again, blows my mind. It's wild. And again, because we just love how weird these stories get, Etrigan is a demon. He is a demon from hell. He's facing the ghost of some generally pretty evil sorcerer. You'd think there would be any number of ways he could get rid of this sorcerer. But again, he goes with the most batshit crazy Bob Haney way to get rid of this sorcerer. In a way that we hadn't really seen because he appears throughout the whole thing as you know a dude and somehow etrigan figures aha it's the year of the snake he's obviously gonna be at the lunar new year celebration in snake form so what of do i course as as batman says in batman 66 the movie of course the only possible solution so if he's gonna be a big snake What's the best way to kill a big snake? Turn into a mongoose. Of course. Amber just stuck her head in the door and said, I guessed that. And Batman, the the big vampire bat, is menacing Danny Lou and Glenda as the clock comes so close to striking midnight. It actually, even though you know it's going to wrap up in this one issue and you know it's going to wrap up in the hero's favor... The art and the pacing of it does a really good job of keeping that tension going in that final sequence with the Etramongoose and the Shanzi Cobra fighting while the giant vampire bat- Batman menaces his friends. And uh, I will say these uh, these transformation animations are enough to make Animorphs proud. Like it's uh, it's good work. Really are. I hadn't thought of it. Yeah, that is. there's a definite Animorphs vibe there. And important thing to note, as we'll see with the stories later, this is before Etrigan starts to speak in rhyme. Ah, I was going to ask you about that. Who, what monster starts that? It was originally in a story by Len Wein. I had to look this up because I thought it was Alan Moore. But Len Wein did it in a couple issues of, I think it was Action Comics. And then when Etrigan reappeared in Swamp Thing with Alan Moore writing it, Moore kept up the rhyme. Then Matt Wagner did an Etrigan miniseries and he kept the rhyme going. And then Neil Gaiman had him appear in Sandman and kept the rhyme going. Oh, no. Then... John Byrne comes on. He's like, yeah, fuck that. That Kirby didn't have him rhyme. And so he got rid of the rhyming. And then everybody says, but but Etrigan speaks in rhyme. So the retcon was retconned again. But do you yeah, yeah. A- Etrigan speaks in rhyme and you're an asshole, John Byrne. So we're going to so, go back to that. Exactly. Yeah, pretty much. But did you notice the thing that with those names that I said initially, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Good at writing and rhyming. They're both poets as well as novelists and comic book writers. So they 
actually can, you know, I believe, I think Gaiman actually has Etrigan's longer speech in Sandman as like a Sestina. Like it's complicated poetry, but a lot of Way writers. overachieve there, bud. But a lot of writers writing Etrigan rhymes, it is painfully bad. Uh, the last story tonight is not good at that. No, it is not. Uh, but such is life. And uh, I would probably hit myself in my genitals before trying to write uh, Etrigan rhyme for <laughs> other people to read. Was there anything else? You have anything else for this one? Uh, aside from the coloring, not as problematic as it could have been. No, I was really surprised. And it's not like I was expecting it from Bob Haney, who, from what I gather, was a pretty inclusive and good guy. It's just, it's the time. People with the best intentions wrote some horrible stuff because that was how you wrote at the time. And we're we're still writing horrible stuff. But as we learn, as we grow, uh, we try to do better. Which, as you said, with the history of things, it's why you can't ignore this stuff. Trying to bury it means nothing changes. And especially with uh, with something like Disney and Song of the South, like that that thing happened. And you need to talk about it and you need to talk about why people still like it. And yeah, you can't pretend that it didn't exist. But at the same time, I, I also think that these companies aren't responsible for keeping their own histories. That's on us. That's on outside observers. So I don't expect Disney to house and give context to Song of the South, right? Disney is amoral like any other corporation. Anywho, I think it's time to put Batman, not technically Batman, Brave and the Bold, number 137, Hour of the Serpent on the big board. We are at 315 stories on the big board. Number one is Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. At number 50 is A Savage Innocence, the story where the Joker gets the powers of the Spectre. And coming at a sexy 69, it's Batman 588 to 590, closed before striking. At number 100 is My Own Worst Enemy, the first arc of Scott Snyder's All-Star Batman. At 150 is the first appearances of Jason Todd and Killer Croc. At 200 is Riddler in the Dark, the Charles Soule Batman Legends of the Dark Knight story. 250 is Face the Face, the one year later James Robinson Two-Face story. And all the way down at the bottom, it's Curse of the White Knight. Boo. That's that's, that's a spoopy boo. Boo. Sean Gordon Murphy is terrible. Boo. (laughs) We've only done one of these Brave and the Bold before, I think. 237. Okay. That was the Swamp Thing. Oh, shit. No, I've got... uh... Oh, we've done uh, two. Can't hide from a dead man at right. 237. And then at 253 is the Swamp Thing one, the Delta Connection. I kind of I kind of like this one more than either of them. As as so many things, it can't go above 211. Batman number 66, Joker's Comedy of Errors. Oh, oh no. 
I don't think it's going to be much higher than that 237. I don't know if it's even better than 231, the Batman. I was just looking at that. Yeah. I'd put it above Snapper Car Super Trader at 233. Yeah. I'm not sure if it goes above year two, though. Year two might as well be a Brave and the Bold. It is so completely off the wall. But the Alan Davis and Todd McFarlane art is really nice. The new 233, then. The new 233 it is. Our second story tonight is Major Arcana. This is Batman Volume 1, numbers 544 to 546. The writer is Doug Mensch, with pencils by Kelly Jones, inks by John Beatty, colors by Gregory Wright and Android Images, letters by Todd Klein, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Cover days are July to September of 1997. The Joker has escaped from Arkham again and is practicing his newest hobbies, sorcery and alchemy. He has summoned Etrigan to aid him in bringing a little hell to Gotham, and Batman is running out of time to stop them. So we haven't done one of these in a long time, and usually this is this is a DC editorial, but uh, I'm going to switch it up tonight because it's important to keep the relationship fresh. So we're going to do a little role play. I want you to be Jeremiah Arkham. Okay, can you do that? Okay. Do that? Hey, uh, Mr. Arkham, uh, we uh, we're working on some uh, work release type programs, some uh, some employment here in the hospital. Uh, we've got, uh, Clayface in the, uh, in the cafeteria, but we're going to make him stay, uh, in his, uh, in his more solid human form. And we're going to keep make make sure he wears the hair nets everywhere. Right. We've got, uh, Poison Ivy working in the greenhouse. That one was obvious. Of course, Joker. And, uh, this is the one we wanted to talk to you about. We got Joker, uh, working in, uh, in the lab. Uh, with access to uh, all of the chemicals. Is uh, is that going to be okay with you, boss? Well, of course. To properly rehabilitate someone, you must show them that you trust them. Trust is the foundation of all proper therapy. All right. All right. That's what we thought. Good. <laughs> this, was, uh, this was a good meeting. Yeah, no, right there. You're reading that. It's like seriously. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let's. We're, we're giving the Joker's a trustee now. He's well been well behaved enough to become a trustee. And where are you putting him? The the lab, the the infirmary. Because it, it's not like this guy isn't a mad chemist who likes to create variations on a poison that make people die with crazy grins. Who was his, you know, the other guy in the infirmary, the scarecrow? You don't let the Joker be a trustee. I'm sorry. No matter what, you do not trust the Joker to do anything. He's the friggin' Joker. It's what he does. The Joker conjuring a demon from hell is more realistic than anyone thinking, let's trust the Joker near chemicals. So that was my my first observation in this uh, in this story. And then the the big editing mistake in this one. Did you catch that? I'd have to go through my notes. What did I miss? I don't know whether you would call it a, a pacing thing or a, like I forgot where I was going to put this scene or something. But I think it's in the first or second issue. Batman says something like, 
oh yeah detective bach was right about those books and then we don't get the scene about the books until the third issue which comes at totally the wrong moment in the story when like we know joker's plan and everything it very much felt like a this was supposed to go much earlier in the story i can see that i mean i took the line at that moment as when bruce was eavesdropping and bach taking the books because he thought they were important but yet no i completely agree that the scene in the third issue completely drags the story to a halt especially because mensch loves to pontificate he kind of feels like i did all this research so i want you to hear (laughs) all of this stuff that i've discovered about alchemy and isaac newton yeah but it it does. That is not a good moment for that to happen. But we've seen that this is much better than a lot of the Mensch we've seen from this Mensch Jones run. I'm trying to think, what are the other ones that we've had from this? We had the, the Clayface one. Oh, no, th- that was unseen. This is well above that stuff. Oh, boy. You know, as much as I like Kelly Jones and as much as we have loved the the vampire trilogy there doesn't seem to be a lot to like from this run i think jones is best when jones is given the time to really go wild i don't think he's necessarily the best artist for a monthly book especially when it's not all that interesting and i also wonder in the credits it was John Beatty who inked Jones here. I also wonder if Jones is best with different inkers because Malcolm Jones III inked Red Rain and I believe did Red Rain and Bloodstorm? No, Beatty did both Blood Bloodstorm and Crimson Mist. Jones only inks Red Rain. So we know that Beatty can ink Jones and it can look really nice. I just feel like Jones is not an artist who's best at keeping a monthly schedule. And so it kind of feels like these pages were coming in at the last minute. So they were often sort of rushed. Also, the coloring on this is super dark. Yes, Kelly Jones, I mean, should be dark because he's all about shadows and stuff, but stuff's getting lost in the shadows here. Yeah, and some of it I feel may have been the digital conversion. There we go. Because it's just got this weird kind of almost a sheen to it. I don't know how to describe it. I don't think that so much the conversion as this is right around the time where computer colors started being a thing. Ah, yeah, that's probably it. Yeah, because computer colors came in vogue 94, 95, and this is 97. So we're still within the first few years of computer colors. So you can absolutely see that they haven't gotten the idea that less can be more with computer colors. Yes, very much. So yeah, most of these three issues is a lot of blacks, not a lot of detail. The Kelly Jones work is still good. Like, you know, it's still 
gruesome for lack of a better word although there's not a lot of gore it's a lot of just exaggerated faces and it has a very horror vibe to it without being a horror story and he draws really good joker rictus grins on people because one of the big things in the story is that Joker has come up with a version of the Joker Venom that doesn't kill you. It just gives you the smile and makes you really suggestible. So you've got a lot more than just Joker with the pallor and the big smile. So it's good that Jones is able to make those characters look really creepy. He also draws a really neat Etrigan. I think I've said it before when we've talked about Jones, but... Jones doesn't necessarily believe in on-model. No, he does not. Characters distort and twist and morph to fit what the mood of that panel is. And for some characters, that isn't the best thing, but it really works with Etrigan. It works with Deadman, too. Someday we'll cover some of the Kelly Jones Deadman stuff, because there's a Mench Jones Deadman arc too had glow in the dark covers back in the day interesting touch a a neat thing for the you know the 90s i like the conceit of this story but i think the story is paced so strangely because very little happens over three issues oh my god the first issue is basically just joker talking to himself yeah, it's it's multiple conversations. It's Joker talking to himself and then talking to Etrigan and Batman investigating Joker's escape from Arkham. There's not any real action to that issue. And then most of the action takes place in part two into part three. And Batman winds up more or less talking Etrigan down in the end. There isn't really a big confrontation in this story there's some interesting philosophizing but it just it feels like this could have been done in two issues no i i think absolutely and kind of some weird beats from alfred here the whole idea of like oh my god vespers at the clock and then he just he just drops the serving tray come on man and Maybe it's years of a more paternal Alfred in my head, but I can't see him being upset that Bruce is being less Batman and more Bruce. That seems very out of character from Alfred from the past 20 years. We're here, he's, you know, Vesper Fairchild is distracting you from the mission. Even at this period, that seems a little bit off and how quickly she wins him over yeah that's strange very strange i do like the rapport that mench has between bruce and alfred that alfred initially is is very stodgy about this and then bruce turns the words against alfred when vesper has won alfred over i like it when they can be playful between each other it made me wonder we can't read all this stuff in order there's there's no way to do that but this 90s era is well, so... well well matt matt we could literally read it in order we could <laughs> but we wouldn't get to anything anybody wants to hear about for dozens if not hundreds of episodes 
Uh, you mean people don't want to hear about Batman fighting space monsters for 40 episodes in a row? Yeah, exactly. But the thing that we run into here is this era in the 90s is so serialized and the books all are in conversation with each other that reading it out of order means that it feels like some of the context is missing for some of it. And it's not all as bad as a couple episodes ago with Mr. Wayne goes to Washington and fight and flight, despite being two different arcs, they're pretty much touching each other in multiple places. But there is context in what Mensch is doing with Vesper Fairchild that we don't have, despite this being theoretically a self-contained arc. You know, it's such an interesting dilemma that I guess it's not so much of a problem now, but when you had Shadow of the Bat and Legend of the Dark Knight and Detective and Batman uh, and trying to weave those titles together. And even now, when it's just Batman Detective, what are the purpose of each one of those books? Like, what are they supposed to do? And I think we've agreed on this. Like, Detective is always better when it has a well-defined mission, when it's not just, oh, it's just a, it's another bat title to read. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I like when these books, as you said, are in conversation with each other because you feel like there's this wider world, like these events matter. And that was one of the things I liked about uh, Batman and Robin. Like it didn't get so deep into Gotham War, but it at least referenced it, right? It, it says like, oh, okay, there's stuff going on right now. So I, I don't know what the right approach is. And so many of these books were still written in a time when the idea that all of this would be put into trades was not in anybody's head. Trades were for Dark Knight Returns, Death in the Family, and Watchmen and Sandman. Trades were for major works, or you'd get you know original graphic novels as books. Most things weren't traded. So it's why you get a lot, you still get a good amount of exposition recap in these books. And it's why you get three or four pages out of a 22-page comic explaining the history of Etrigan. Because most people who are reading just Batman probably don't know that Etrigan is the half-brother of Merlin. You didn't have Wikipedia in 1997. No, you did not. Uh, but, you know, I've always wanted to see a demon's first words, a big little baby demon. Da-da. I feel at least I think that Mensch has a good feeling for Joker here. Joker is, his voice is correct. He shows zero respect for Etrigan, despite Etrigan probably being able to squash him like a bug at any moment, because he's the Joker, and... He'll always find some way out of it. Of course. Uh, and and I do like the idea that, oh, okay. Uh, Joker's like, um, all right, I'm going to bargain with the devil because uh, my my soul is so infinitely black and dark. Oh, okay. Maybe that's not a good idea. Uh, maybe I'll promise him a whole bunch of other souls. Oh, shit. That's not a good idea either. Oh, fuck. You mean I really don't have anything here? Eh. Okay. All right, well, what's plan C? Alchemy! And I also completely think that the idea that Joker would be like, 
I'm bored. What do I want to read about today? Sorcery and alchemy. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, I'm going to find some way to do something with it that's chaotic and awful because that's what I do. That is what I do. That's how I do. I just feel like if you have a three-issue arc and it's the Joker and Etrigan, there should have been way more chaos in the streets of Gotham. Yeah, all we got was uh, gargoyles falling off of one building. And I think the idea that Etrigan is not suffering fools and the Joker is constantly pissing him off is fine. I think it made for a good dynamic between the two of them. But Etrigan himself says over and over again, I'm evil. So he should probably be aiding the Joker in some of his wilder ideas. Joker comes up with this idea at the very end. I want you to burn a hole until you get to the Earth's molten core so we flood the subways with magma. And that idea goes nowhere because Batman comes in and starts pitting the Joker against Etrigan. And that would have been another time where you could have had some fun with the clock. That Batman has to get them to turn on each other while Etrigan is drilling this hole. Or something that's not just conversation. And the the conversation about predetermination and what makes one evil, what makes one good. Does Joker's insanity absolve him morally of a lot of the things he does because he doesn't understand he has a choice? It's all interesting stuff, but we've seen... That one issue of the Spectre that's up at number 50, where they have a similar discussion, is done in a story that moves. Mm -hmm. Versus here, where the story stops, so Batman and Etrigan can have a conversation about morality. I like the resolution, though. I like the idea that, oh, Batman did a good thing in saving joker but by saving joker you enabled evil to continue so is batman truly good or is he a little evil i like that touch and i think you needed a lot of that preamble to get there Uh there's ways that that could have been delivered that felt less talking heads yeah very expositiony and i forgot how much i like hardback Mackenzie Bach. He was a great character. This just well-read, studious, kind of quiet cop. And he was a great foil to Bull in the China Shop that was Bullock. I take it this is an era in which Batman, quote, doesn't exist. So that's why he has to have this earpiece and listen in on Bullock's investigations and whatnot. That era is roughly 94. It's about a 10-year period from about 94 to 2004 where they were really leaning into the urban legend Batman. Right after Zero Hour through War Games is the urban legend part of the Bat mythos is pretty heavy. I also want to go back and reread some of this stuff from this era because I'm trying to remember why Bullock is partnered with Bach here because I always remember Bullock and Montoya and Bach and Essen as partners. There must be something going on that's there's just been a shuffling or it was just, hey, we want these two characters bouncing off each other for this story. So we'll partner them up. 
but I remember hardback usually being Sarah Essen's part. But again, the dynamic between these two is good because you've got you know, studious, well-dressed, quiet, thoughtful Bach and Harvey Bullock. Former reality television star, Harvey Bullock. Okay, we don't talk about Hush and we don't talk about Earth One. <laughs> At least until we have to read more Hush and more Earth One. There, there can't be more hush. Oh, there's so much more. No, there's no way there's more hush. We did hush and we did heart of hush. That has to be it. Oh, there's house of hush. Get the fuck out. Get and the fuck out. Two more volumes of Earth One. I well, I look. I know that, but house of hush. What the fuck is that? Streets of Gotham one to three, I believe. Gross. The one thing. That I also was like, oh, I don't like that necessarily. I had no problem with Joker calling Etrigan Eddie Babe because again, he's a Joker. He doesn't care, and he'll he'll needle you. But when Joker has a couple of his thugs show up and they call him, "Hey, jokes, what's going on?" No, he's the Joker. You will address him by his proper title, or he will kill you. Joker, sir. Right. The Joker Supreme, as he calls himself, as he's learning sorcery. I'm loath to ask because this might be poking a hornet's nest. Oh, no. What did you think of the lettering? I thought it was just fine. You mean like uh, Etrigan's lettering? Yeah. Yeah, no, I uh, I mean, it's readable. That's that's all I ask for. And that, I mean, it's Todd Klein. Todd Klein is, I think we've said it before. I think Todd Klein has won something like 17 lettering Eisner's. He's the goat. Yeah. And the uh, the only lettering that makes me punchy is the Batman who laughs red on black. And um, whenever Hassan is to try hard. I was curious because I found this very readable, but I'm always curious when there is the use of unusual fonts, how you react to it. Since I know that is a particular bugaboo for you. If and we see this from time to time, if it had also been Joker with a different lettering style and that being on the same page, that probably would have made me punchy. So if they had used the Morrison Joker font, that particular font that he has in the Morrison and that whole year, he has it in Morrison and he has it in Black Mirror still leading into the new 52s. So yeah, I think that clashing with the angly, weird, Etrigan demonic font, yeah, that probably would have looked really strange. I think you should have a good reason why you break out from the traditional, or you know, whatever the traditional standard default lettering is for your book, if you want to give a character some different style. And Etrigan is a demon who fucking speaks in rhyme. Like, if you want to do that, that's fine. Uh, I don't think Joker should have his own lettering style. I don't think the Batman who laughs should have his own lettering style. I certainly don't think you should have five different tools for emphasis in your lettering toolkit. You know, as, as always, I want the lettering to not be intrusive. I don't want to think about the lettering as I'm trying to read a book. And I don't want to have to decipher the lettering as I'm trying to read a book. Uh, so none none of this here sort of set off my you know my alarms. Okay, that was my last question. I believe that means it's time. But Batman 
544 to 546, Major Arcana on the big board. I think we are well and truly in Trifle Town here. Going down, down, down to Trifle Town. Which at this point is between 180 down to 250-ish. Like that's all trifly, mostly forgettable, good ideas that have some particular flaw to them area. I need to add creator columns to my list so I can search for different specific creators because I'm curious to see where we have some of the other Doug Mensch on this list. I mean, you know, Unseen and the Clayface story are down towards the bottom. And the exposition here is much more readable than the let me describe all the Clayfaces for oh, you exposition from 550. God. My God. Oh, when you are explaining Clayfaces, you are losing. Again, I think this has a really good concept that gets dragged down by the fact that it's mostly three issues of just converse. It's two issues of conversation with one set piece in the middle. Yeah, there should be more shenanigans here. I still would put it above Hour of the Serpent. It's above 233. But I don't know how much higher than that. Because I don't think it's better than... Death in the Family at 226. That's a better Joker story. Would I put this above 228? Luther, you're driving me sane? Ooh. I don't think so. I think Luther, you're driving me sane. That story moves. That's kooky. And it explores something kind of fun about like what happens to the Joker when he's not crazy anymore. It doesn't explore it deeply because that is not a deep series it also throws out a neat idea and it breezes through it all right what what about making this the new 231 yeah only a couple spots above hour of the serpent but this is just the neighborhood for etrigan stories apparently i don't know if we'll be able to say that after the next one Uh, one final thing about these um i did not like the covers I don't ever say that because I normally don't think about the covers, but I don't think you should be putting paragraphs of text on your covers. I like some dialogue on a cover. Like I love like a couple of like snappy word balloons, but a big paragraph does make a cover look kind of busy. Yeah. You got Joker summoning demons and shit. You don't need paragraphs on there. Ancient ritual, arcane rite, Joker and demon will spill blood tonight. Like you have Joker, and this is the third issue. Like you have Joker uh, on the cover engaging in like a satanic ritual. Just go with that. And sacrificing Batman, something that does not happen in the comic. I'm sure when I bought that as a single issue, I was probably disappointed that nothing like that happened in the issue. And in the second issue, you did not have Joker pulling Etrigan out of a hat either. I would read that book. (laughs) Ah, for my next trick. Our final story of the night is And Flights of Demons Sing Thee to Thy Rest. This is Batman Beyond Volume 2, Number 14. The writer is Hilary J. Bader with pencils by Min S. Q. Inks by 
Jordy Ensign, colors by Lee Lawfridge, letters by Tim Harkins, and edited by Frank Berrios and Joseph Illich. The cover date is December of 2000. It's Halloween, and a demon has taken up residence in Terry McGinnis's subconscious. He has to stay awake for 24 hours until Jason Blood is back from his day as Etrigan. But the demon has plans of his own, ones that are in direct opposition of Terry. So we mentioned this earlier. Um, some of this rhyme does not work. And this is this is the one that works the least. What fresh delight greets Etrigan tonight and such a pretty bauble. My master is expecting trouble. Rhyming bauble with trouble. And when he has a bad rhyme in or a slant rhyme in the previous story, Joker kind of calls him out on it. He makes a joke of the fact that he rhymed the hand with Etrigan. Here, it's just really a case of Hillary J. Bader, may she rest in peace, just was not good at the rhyming thing, but still felt like you needed to do the rhyming thing. And it would have been better, as they did in the one episode of the new Batman Adventures where Etrigan appears, Etrigan's just kind of silent. (laughs) <laughs> i think he gets one line because there's only one line he doesn't even have to rhyme with anything what i found interesting reading this was that it really felt to me like bader who wrote most of these issues of this this series was mostly known as a screenwriter not a comics writer and a lot of this felt like This was a teleplay that they decided not to use or couldn't use on Batman Beyond. So we're just going to convert it into a comic. Except teleplays and comic scripts are not the same thing. And so there are sequences here that would work much better in animation than in the, the static comic page. There's specifically a whole silent sequence as Etrigan performs mischief around Gotham that it's still funny enough on the comics page, but you look at it and it's like, okay, this was obviously written with the intention of some Scooby-Doo style animation here. Yeah, especially uh, like the Etrigan interrupting a date. It's really cute. But you're right, it doesn't play so well in the in the silent panels. And below that on the same page, you see Etrigan riding a horse, rides the horse off panel. You see the, is it equestrian cop? I'm trying to think if there's a, a different phrase for police officers who ride horses. But the, the equestrian cop chasing Etrigan. A, and then a mounted police officer? Mounted police officer, there you go. The mounted police officer chasing Etrigan. And then the third panel in the sequence is from the direction Etrigan came. It's now Etrigan on the cop's shoulders riding him. Again, it's cute, but it really feels like that was intended to be animated with like wacky music playing. Yes, absolutely wacky music. I read that whole sequence and it was like, oh yeah, I kind of want to go and put on the music from a chase sequence in an episode of Scooby-Doo 
while I read this panel because it feels like that's what needs to be going on in the background here. La da da, la da da da, la da da, da 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 da. And while I might be incorrect that this was a screenplay, it's obvious then that Bader is someone who's used to writing for animation and thus her comics read like that. There's also some weird stuff in here that I feel like there were miscues with the art, with the, the colorist and the letterer to be specific. Multiple times, Terry calls the demon Alcazar, the one who's in his mind, red. But Alcazar is a green demon. He's wearing like red trunks, but I don't know why you call him red and not green. And there's another panel where I'm pretty sure what was supposed to be Alcazar's dialogue is coming from Etrigan based on the attribution of the word bubble. And I, I, that's all a shame because I, I mean, I know at least Joseph Illage, who's one of the editors here, is a really well-respected and really good editor. But I think this is, you know, very early in his career, too. And I don't think he was the main editor on the book. But it just feels like this was kind of sloppily done. Yeah, one of my, I guess my bugaboos and dialogue and lettering, like Terry, he's been knocked unconscious or something, and he gives a sound effect, but it's written out in a word balloon. It says moan, exclamation point, in a balloon. Uh, that's weird. The art in general, I, I like the design of Alcazar. I like the way that Ku draws Etrigan. I like the way... Terry looks, and I love the the design at the very end when Terry's brother Matt pops up in a demon mask. It, it's a fun little panel, but I, I don't blame the artist for this. The problems with this lie in the pacing of the script, I think. Yeah, and generally, right? Generally, it's it's a fun little story. It's not so much a beyond story, though. It's not terribly a beyond story. No, there doesn't need to be any reason that this is a Terry, needs to be Terry McGinnis. Yeah. Bruce Wayne would have reacted a little differently to some of it, but the general premise of he has to stay awake for 24 hours and babysit Etrigan could have worked just as well for Bruce Wayne. And the only other time that Terry meets Etrigan is in an issue from the initial Batman Beyond comics miniseries that wasn't a relationship in the TV show. The only other time they met was issue four of Batman Beyond volume one, the comic, which has a really cool Bruce Tim cover, Tim drawing Terry and Etrigan. And Tim loves that Kirby stuff. So it looks really nice. Your encyclopedic knowledge continues to astound. Yeah, yeah, like you you want to have like Etrigan in, in cyberspace or like Etrigan like as a demon in, in your computers or something weird and more sci-fi like that. Or even Etrigan interacting with unique elements of the beyond world, splicers or jokers, or maybe the fact that you know Terry has a mom and a brother. There's something you could do there that you couldn't do with Bruce. Or just play more on Terry's interactions with Etrigan. It's not like Terry does anything here that is particularly different from what Bruce would do. Mm -hmm. 
or Nightwing. That's a fine line to write because Dick Grayson written in a certain way is pithy and acrobatic, which is what Terry McGinnis is. So if you're being sloppy, a Dick Bat story can come off as a Batman Beyond story and vice versa. I would have liked to see a little more of Etrigan playing with this world. Up to and including, I mean, he blocks off a bridge and threatens to have people, you know, like, you got to pay the toll with your soul. And one guy just decides to jump off the bridge rather than do it. But again, there's, there's something fun to be had with that as a conceit of Etrigan making it a toll bridge with your soul but you don't get to play with it that much. Yeah, this is um, not quite as fun as it should have been. I have to apologize. After oh. I made that comment about that Bruce Tim cover on that Batman Beyond issue, I remembered the issue number correctly. I wanted to make sure I was right that it was Tim. It was not. It was oh. Darwin Cook. Oh, I knew it was a gorgeous, gorgeous cover because it's still stuck in my head over the years. And I mean, Cook was one of the designers on Batman Beyond. And so, yeah, I was like, I, I wanted to double check. And, you know, you must properly attribute Darwin Cook to Darwin Cook. Lest you go to comics hell. Damn right. But yeah, I, I think you're right. This is a fun story that could have been more fun with just a little more thought Again, playing a little more with what makes Terry, Terry. I did like the one visual when Etrigan is sort of forcing the other demon into the amulet on his chest. And he's like slowly disappearing into the amulet before he turns back into Batman. It's a good creepy visual as you just see him slowly disappearing. He's just a head sticking out of this amulet. I also felt like there was, again, some pacing stuff here where suddenly at the end, Terry's like, aha, Jason Blood gave me these mystically enhanced Batman gadgets. Couldn't we have seen that happen earlier so it didn't come off as a deus ex machina on the last couple of pages? Yeah, that would have been helpful. Yeah, it's, it is a perfectly fine story, but I this... Tonight is very much a trifly sort of night. Halloween is for trifles, Matt. Yeah, I mean, there's, again, some cool stuff at the beginning when he's first fighting the demon. Not Etrigan the demon, Alcazar the demon. When it turns into a snake and then turns to dust. But it's just kind of there. Maybe that's part of the problem here. Maybe you just need one demon in your story. In your Batman story, maybe. Yeah. I, mean, I think there are, are plenty of stories where you absolutely should have multiple demons. But I think it would have been better if Alcazar was a more interesting demon. Yeah. Because he's very just sort of one note. like, oh, he's the nightmare demon. What makes him different from any other demon? He's in your nightmares. Yeah. Okay. If you, if you die in your nightmares, you die for real. The fun thing in the that one episode of New Batman Adventures with Etrigan is he's fighting Clary and the Witch Boy, who's a very different sort of mystical threat. He isn't just another generic demon. I could have used a little more about why Alcazar was an interesting threat. 
mm-hmm. make him more serious or more funny or I mean, he's a dream demon. Make him Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Some of the some of the shit we just saw in the you know the night terrors, like have him have Terry, you know, have a dream about failing Batman or uh or killing Bruce or something. Just like the the dreamscape here is so boring. Yeah, it's just it's a, a craggy wasteland and Alcazar is fighting Terry. If Alcazar is the nightmare demon, he should appear to him as Bruce and Bruce telling him that, you know, you failed me. Yes. You you failed Batman. Because that's Terry's at this point, especially his great insecurity, his great fear is that he's not good enough. You you should have been playing with, with that in the nightmare, not just having Alcazar like pound on it. Because that makes him just generic houndy thug demon versus, oh, the nightmare demon. I also did like the idea that Halloween is the one day that Etrigan gets to be Etrigan for 24 hours. But yeah, you know, otherwise he's just too much of a pain in the ass for the rest of the year. Gotta let him out for, you know, Halloween. And of course he wants more than Halloween. He's a demon. He's greedy. Damn right. The best demon stories are when he and Jason Blood are in an uneasy alliance, but Etrigan always is looking to get a little bit more out of it. They shouldn't be fully antagonistic because that gets old really fast, but they also shouldn't be too agreeable with each other. You have to, again, strike a very fine balance in how Jason and Etrigan interact. And I think here that works because like, Oh, it's it's my one day, so I just want to squeeze out as much time as I can out of it. I'm going to have some demon shenanigans. Fun fact, as I had left Hillary J. Bader, who wrote this episode, uh, her IMDb up, she wrote three episodes of Next Gen. Huh. Oh, a season four episode, a season five episode, and a season seven episode. Uh, what was that season four? Because that's like the best season. The Loss. She wrote Troy stuff. That's the one mm. where Deanna Troy loses her psychic abilities. Okay, that one wasn't great. What about season five? Hero Worship. Oh, that's the Data one with the little kid who begins to mimic Data because he wants to not feel emotions. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. All right, so what's the weird one from season seven? So oh we did no! Shit, season seven. We do, but this one is probably one of the better season seven episodes and one of the straightest. Dark page. Oh, Luxana. is that? Yeah, yeah. Where she's grieving for her daughter. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was some good shit. That was finally Loxana getting some some depth. Three episodes of Next Gen. One episode of Voyager from season one and four episodes of DS nine, all from the early seasons, season one, one episode in season one, one episode in season two and two episodes in season three. Just looking at Hillary J. Bader's IMDb credits, there are some lot of Star Trek. I mean, those also wrote the scripts to two of the Star Trek video games, Klingon and Borg. She wrote Star Trek Borg? Yeah. That was a fun-ass game. Did you ever play that? I didn't. 
All right, so Star Trek Borg was a full motion video game and you played from the first person perspective of like the son or the child of someone who had died at Wolf 359 and Q comes to you and says, okay, it's time to make this right. And he offers to like put you in a place to like stop Wolf 359 or something. You can easily just go to YouTube and just watch like all of, you know, the video. Um, I remember the solution to like the final puzzle, basically, because it was basically a puzzle game. Like he would just click on different stuff to advance the story. The final thing was was kind of innovative, at least from a storytelling perspective of how to beat the board. But yeah, you can. I know you can just watch it on YouTube now. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, just looking at me. Uh, she was in the writer's room on New Batman Adventures, Superman, the animated series, and Batman Beyond. The really interesting career. Passed away barely young, 50, back in 2002. Mm. So, yeah, that's always sad to see. But, yeah, really Looks like a really interesting career. One episode of the utterly bizarre late 90s, early aughts syndicated series, Jack of All Trades with Bruce Campbell as... Yeah, I thought that was Bruce Campbell. Oh, yeah. Weird-ass show. And its companion, because it was, it was there were two half-an-hour shows that were in the same syndicated block. It was that and Cleopatra 2525, early appearances by Gina Torres, a dystopian future with uh, just a, an exotic dancer cryogenically frozen in the year 2001 is accidentally thought out in 2525 by two female warriors who are fighting against evil robots who have taken over the world. Yes, that's a show right there. <laughs> right there. Yeah. I miss crazy, weird-ass syndicated television. Oh, man. You could you could put anything on syndicated TV. Uh, oh, yeah. Speaking of, wrote four episodes of Xena Warrior Princess, too. Okay, we, we've wandered way afield. I mean, at least, you know, we're, we're talking about Star Trek. We're sort of on brand in DC uh... animation. But now that we're into Cleopatra 2525 and Xena, I think we're... We're ready to go. Yeah. Well, that means it's time. But Batman Beyond, number 14, may flights of demons sing thee to thy rest on the big board. I will say that it's better than Catwoman Election Night at 269. I don't think it's as good as the first issue of this series, though, at 248. That seems right. It is better than Mr. Wayne Goes to Washington at 259. Uh, I'd probably put it above the Grim Knight at 256. Is it better than the complete Dead Man arc in one issue of Gotham Adventures at 253? Probably. But I don't think I'd put it above Batman 113. The Superman of Planet X. I think it then goes at, it's the new 252. I think Face to Face still has some stuff in it that I like, but it's also, it was eight issues that should have been four to six. And that's always points lost. 
that does it for tonight. Next week, we're finishing up stories where Batman 66 teams up with other properties. We've got a story where he meets the Green Hornet, Steeden Peel, the British Avengers, and Archie and the Riverdale Gang? Question mark? We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, mm. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Two Bucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sreggioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne for their support. McThorny! You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the show on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Devon. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of New Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>